You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Magecart counts another library infestation as Feedify is hit. An evil cursor attack is a variant of a familiar tech support scam. The Ramnet banking trojan seems to be spiking during the summer. More Novichok disinformation is out. Safari URL spoofing seems more nuisance than serious menace. And North Korea denounces the U.S. for a smear campaign against the Lazarus Group, which doesn't exist either. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Friday, September 14th, 2018. The Magecart gang appears to have hit another victim this week, moving on from its successful breach of British Airways to an attack on customer engagement company Feedify. It succeeded in compromising Feedify's shared JavaScript library, an attack that's consistent with the gang's long-standing practice of going after targets in the supply chain. We've been calling Magecart a gang, but really it's a few different groups, now using the same commodified malicious code, as the RiskIQ researchers who've been following Magecart explained to InfoSecurity magazine. Feedify had actually been infected back in August and cleaned out the bad code. This latest incident is a re-attack. RiskIQ recommends that anyone using the library remove the JavaScript link from their stores as soon as possible. Malwarebytes notes the appearance of an evil cursor attack that affects recent versions of the Chrome browser. It prevents users from closing a window or a tab by clicking the usual X at the top, instead displaying a scare pop-up to drive nervous users to the criminal's bogus service offerings. Virus alert from Microsoft. This computer is blocked, the screamer reads. Below, it advises, do not close this window and restart your computer. As it explains why we block your computer, the pop-up syntactic control grows looser and less idiomatic, certainly nothing that they'd tolerate at Redmond. The reason why they block your computer is the usual argle-bargle designed to scare the timid. It's an illegal registry key, This window is using pirated software. This window is sending virus over the Internet. This computer is hacked or used from undisclosed location, and so on. But they've got your interests at heart. We block this computer for your security. And when you care enough to block a computer, naturally you care enough to provide a toll-free helpline. Obviously, don't bite. Just shut it down and move on. 
It's not from Microsoft, and may we express some sympathy for Redmond over being such impersonation fodder. Console yourself, Microsoft. It comes with being a market leader. The evil cursor is, in effect, a wrinkle on a scareware tech support scam, with a twist that it actually does block you from using that X to exit a browser tab or window. A number of organized criminal groups are using the evil cursor attack, with the partner Stroka gang first among equals. Malwarebytes is working with the Chromium team at Google to put a stop to this nonsense. We hope they can do something. Evil cursor sounds pretty bad, and if an evil maid got a hold of an evil cursor, why, it'll be pretty much Katie bar the door, right? Security firm Checkpoint has been following the Ramnit banking trojan, and they see a seasonal pattern. It seems to them to peak during the summer. This is the second year they've observed a surge from May through July. SC Magazine points out that Ramnit, for the most part, works by turning victim machines into malicious proxy servers. Why there is this apparent seasonal peak isn't clear. Some researchers poo-poo this phenomenon. Security firm WatchGuard, for one, told SC Magazine it hasn't really seen the same thing and that they'd need more data to understand it. But they do offer some speculation. Maybe there are a lot of school-age kids out there on summer break with too much time on their hands. Kids these days. They used to hang out on street corners smoking and throwing rocks at cars. Now they mess around with commodity Trojans. Or here's another explanation. Maybe the kids are all right, researchers at Trustwave Spider Labs think, and maybe it's the IT and security staffers coming back from the annual two weeks that contract and custom entitle them to spend at Perth Amboy or Wells next to the sea. When they get back to the job, the email's been accumulating and the inbox is a mess. So in a rush to clear it out, maybe their usual vigilance and skepticism aren't quite there, so they inadvertently swallow more fish bait. Or, as security experts at Fujitsu point out, someone else less wary than the usual crowd could be filling in for them while they're off playing miniature golf in Ocean City, and blammo, all of a sudden, you're infected. In any case, seasonal trends are interesting, and sometimes difficult to get a handle on. Speaking of holidays, the two GRU goons British authorities fingered for the Salisbury nerve agent attacks have now appeared on Russian television as part of Moscow's continuing dissembling. Alexander Petrov and Ruslan Boshirov said sure they were in the UK, but that they're just a couple of sports nutrition enthusiasts who went to Salisbury as innocent tourists interested in seeing Stonehenge and the cathedral. And sure, maybe they went by the Skripal's house, but that was an accident, because they've never heard of anyone named Skripal, and besides, they didn't know where they lived. Prime Minister May's spokesman at number 10 calls the gentleman's interview blatant lies and fabrications and an insult to the public's intelligence. It's hard not to agree, but unlikely insistence is a common motif in information operations. The incident's whole aftermath would be comedy, comedy that it is, if it didn't involve nerve agent poisoning, several injuries, and at least one death. The Safari browser flaw reported this week does make URL spoofing easier, but consensus seems to be that it's more likely to be a nuisance than a major threat. An easy protection, Sofo says, is to stay clear of easily impersonated HTTP sites. North Korea denounces the U.S. indictment of one of its Lazarus Group hackers as a smear campaign, which of course North Korea would. 
The indictment is part of a long-running American policy of charging officers of foreign governments with hacking offenses. It raises some interesting questions about drawing a line in espionage. Destruction or theft would seem to be actionable, and that's the line U.S. authorities have tended to be most comfortable drawing. Information operations or simple espionage seem arguably more complex, as a piece in The Economist points out. Would traditional signals intelligence be as offensive as various forms of cyber espionage? Does disinformation somehow seem worse if it's committed over Twitter than if it's distributed in the form of leaflets? The answer many seem to want to give is that the cyber forms seem somehow worse. Finally, there's much mutually amplifying woofing in social media to the effect that gas explosions in the U.S. Commonwealth of Massachusetts were the result of cyber attacks. This is grossly premature speculation, as people who work in industrial control system security have been quick to point out. The incident is under investigation, and such inquiries take time. There are plenty of accidents, and most of them are just that. So let's wait and see. Not everything happens for a nefarious reason. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. He is also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, good to have you back. It's good to be back, Dave. You know, we had a story come by from the Register where they interviewed uh, someone by the name of Joseph Kerrigan. Really? Yes, a Register reader <laughs> who was having some issues with some password information uh, with a bank that he does business with. Joe, uh, fill us in on this story. Right. So I went to uh, one of the banks with whom I have a credit card. Right. And I, like I have always said, and I and I, I practice what I preach. I use a password manager. I use very long and complex passwords for every site that is important to me that I deem 
would be bad if uh, if someone got a hold of the password. I also have a personal policy where I change the passwords frequently hmm. uh, with some frequency, not not frequently, but I change them like once every 90 days or 180 days. Now right. You're on a rotation. I'm on a rotation. Now, there, there's some research out there that says you shouldn't force users to change passwords. Right? Yeah. And that that's actually valid research and it has a, a different thing. But that's that's coming from the from the uh, policy side. You know, like right, because that encourages password reuse. Exactly. It whereas you're spinning up long random passwords, right. so you so don't have that problem. On a personal on a personal policy, I still think it's a good idea to periodically change your password. Okay. Because that protects you against the breach that you don't know about. Okay. Right. Sure. Or even the company might not know about. So I go to the password change interface, mm-hmm. uh, and I can log in using my password manager, no problem. But when I go to the password change interface on this particular site. And I, I click Control-V to paste my current password in, and nothing happens. Mm. So I try it again. I try it all up. Nope, can't do it. Can't do it. So I actually called their uh, customer support line, and I got uh, tech support, the first-level tech support. And I said, uh, I said, I can't change my password with my password manager. And they're like, yeah, you're going to have to manually enter it. Mm. I said, my password is 30 characters long. Uh, I say, listen, that that's going to require ninety keystrokes of random characters, <laughs> and they there can't be any mistakes in that. I don't have those kind of typing skills. Yeah, right, right, right. You need to be able to. And she, and the first level person was very very insistent. No, you're going to have to. Re-. So I said, I don't think you're understanding what the what the what the problem is here. So I get to the second level tech support, okay. and I say. Uh, is this by design? And, and this person tells me, yeah, it's by design. We don't want people pasting passwords into the field. Mm. And I said, that is a bad security practice. Uh, you should you should not be doing that because it prevents people from using a password manager. Well, let me, let me play devil's advocate here because right. I think one of the issues where I can see why they would do this is that we've seen certain types of uh, malware, particularly when it comes to trying to steal cryptocurrency, where they go after the um, you know the cut and paste buffer the uh, oh right right they, that's where they target they look for you to be cutting and pasting things because that could be a weak link that's in the clear right you're cutting and pasting things yeah that, my, that my are... password does have to exist in the clear momentarily right because right. The, the password manager I use actually clears out the clears out that field right shortly afterwards however it, that is the same risk as having a, a keylogger on your computer where they could just get a, uh, a a sample of my username and password from my keyboard entry. Mm-hmm. So the risk is, you know, it's it's one risk or the other. Hmm. And the risk is, so I don't view those two risks as being significantly different. Hmm. Either I'm, I'm cutting it and pasting it or I'm entering it manually. One of the two is going to have to happen. Uh, so the password manager I use is password safe. It was designed by Bruce Schneier, who's a well-known person. Everybody in security knows who Bruce Schneier is, right? Yep, yep. But one of the things they have as a feature of that product is you can perform an autotype, but you have to go into the settings and change the autotype settings because the the default autotype settings is it will it will send the username, it will send a tab character, and then it will send the password, and then it will send a return character. I see. So you just have to change it to send just the password character. Uh, or just the password, rather, I which see. is you change with a backslash P. So rather than doing a cut and paste, the software can be configured to actually do the typing. Correct. And that, if, you, if you're really concerned about somebody capturing your buffer, you can use that feature of the program. Mm. Although you're probably then, again, vulnerable to the keyboard logging because it still counts as an input device. Hmm. 
All right. Well, it's an interesting story. Again, it's over on the register. Uh, you can search for uh, Joe Kerrigan, and you'll find it there. Uh, thanks, Joe. It's an interesting story, as always. Good to see you. It's my pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Ron Gula. He started his career as a penetration tester for the NSA, but is perhaps best known as co-founder and former CEO at Tenable Network Security, a company he helped scale to more than 20,000 worldwide customers with annual revenue of more than $100 million. Ron is president of Gula Tech Adventures, which focuses on investing in and advisement of emerging cybersecurity companies. When I was in the Air Force, I went in to be a pilot. I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur, but I had always enjoyed computers. I had PCs, PC juniors growing up in Atari 400, that that kind of stuff. Mm. And it wasn't until I had worked at the NSA, worked at BBN, uh, worked for U.S. Internetworking, that I said, I, I think I have a product or an idea to help folks and uh, possibly be, be an entrepreneur. And I, at the time, I was using ISS Real Secure. ISS was a network intrusion detection system, and it was Windows only. And this is when Linux was just coming out. This is before you know people had Linux everywhere and before there were things like Snort. And uh, I wrote something called the Dragon Intrusion Detection System, which, you know, you could SSH into a Linux box or a FreeBSD box or even OpenBSD back in the 90s and uh, do network intrusion detection and network forensics. And that was my first sort of foray into entrepreneurship. Now, take us through the process of scaling, though, because, you know, you start off with a, with an idea and, uh, you know, probably a handful of people but, um, you know, Tenable is a $100 million-plus company. H- how, do you, how do those transitions work? Are they difficult? Are there growing pains throughout? Yeah, scaling is a, is an, is a never-ending problem. And even after you go public like, like Tenable, now you got to keep scaling, right? For In many ways, it's a starting line, not a finish line of going public. Hmm. So, you know, if you're going to scale, I always try to tell entrepreneurs, what do you want? What is your goal? And if you can't answer that, that means somebody else is going to answer that question for you. Probably also going to define your level of job satisfaction and happiness as well. So I always tell people, what do they want? And uh, so if you're going to scale, if you're going to get customers, if you're going to try to have fun, if you're going to try to be innovative, those are all very, very different things. And unless you have that focus about what you're trying to accomplish, you're not going to be able to make those hard calls. What are the things that you have your eye on today? What's exciting you as you uh, as you go out and, and you do things with Gula Tech Adventures? What sort of things are uh, ha- have your eye? So we we focus on a number of different things. You know, well, first and foremost, we're we're you know obviously trying to push uh, cyber hygiene, cyber exposure, the Tenable Network security uh, message, and we still do a good bit of work with organizations who 
you know, struggling with, with the realities of doing vulnerability management compliance in, in, in a modern network. Having said that, you know, in my post-tenable career, what we're focusing on is next generation cloud, threat, and cyber hygiene. And, you know, so that includes things like patch management. It includes things like secure voice communications. It includes things like, you know, very radical next generation cloud architectures such as unikernels. Uh, some of your readers might not have even heard of what a, a unikernel is, but it's sort of the next evolution of uh, what, what happens after containers and serverless security in an on-prem environment. Hmm. Um, so we're having a lot of fun seeing where the market's going and seeing what's what's interested out there. Um, we're also spending a lot of time with with organizations. Uh, if anybody out there wants to wants to reach us, yeah, you know, we we were very active at when I was the CEO at Tenable, meeting with people. But at the end of the day, no matter what conversation we're having at Tenable, the answer is Tenable. Now managing a portfolio of almost uh, thirty companies, it's a it's a very interesting conversation because I, I can kind of generally say what we're focusing, what kind of problems a CIO or CSO might have, and then they'll go, oh, tell me more about Secure Voice. You know, we had a executive, you know, get their phone snooped by whichever adversary country they were visiting to. Or, um, hey, we're, we're having a next generation cloud project. We're going all in with insert vendor here. Do you have anything that can help secure, you know, Amazon Lambda, you know, for example. So it's very interesting seeing those trends and uh, definitely having a lot of fun doing that. What's your advice uh, for that person who thinks they may have a, a good idea, may want to strike out on their own with some, they have their own entrepreneurial spirit, uh, Having been through everything you've been through, do you have any words of wisdom? Yeah, a couple, a couple words. So one, don't confuse good security, uh, a good security solution with the fact that people might want to buy it. Uh, there's a lot of examples of people who come up with a great uh, security widget and the market wasn't ready for it, the market didn't want to buy it. Um, you know, and even if your solution is just a little bit better than something that's out there, um, it, you might be able to demonstrate that you're you know, I, I, the, the CTO of, of uh, Tenable told me this, you know, if you're 5% better than something that I deployed, you know, and it took me a year to deploy it, I'm not going not gonna to replace that. Hmm. Uh, and the second thing I mentioned before is, you know, if you're going to get into entrepreneurship and growing a company, you should have a specific goal in mind. And it's okay to reevaluate those goals based on your success in your market, but you shouldn't just get involved in entrepreneurship to make money, to, um, you know, put a name for yourself. You, you should really do it because you have, have passion. And if you've got passion for whatever problem you're solving, everything else should be not, not really a mood point, but it should be you know, an exercise that, that there's a lot of help on. It's having that idea and that passion that you can't predict and you can't do. So if you're somebody who's thinking about it, that's the big thing is, is if you've got an idea and you really believe in it, you should be able to get funding. You should be able to tell people about your solution. You should be able to attract other people to your company. But unless you have that passion, you're not going to be able to to really succeed and focus on that for, you know, it could be five, five, six years before you really make it. Well, if you're listening to this, I know you guys have a worldwide audience, but if you're in the uh, military or the government and you're coming out and you've been doing services and you think you've got a commercial idea, uh, you can definitely get into this business. So a lot of folks who come out with that pedigree actually have uh, insights that aren't typically available to academia and the commercial world. So I highly encourage anybody with that background to think about starting a company. That's Ron Gula from Gula Tech Adventures. And that's the CyberWire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.